Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host, and we are on to the next episode. Today, our guest is Charles Schauberger. He is a OBGYN and specializes in helping women who are struggling with substance use disorder and going through a pregnancy. It was great to have Charles on the podcast to talk about this issue. And I was so happy that he reached out because I think this is an issue that probably doesn't get talked about or thought about a lot unless you're in that situation. So Charles shares his story of getting into this specialty and how when a woman is supported in her pregnancy and is dealing with substance use disorder, that they can have a very healthy and successful pregnancy with good support and good help. And he is a strong advocate for addiction treatment and compassionate care. Once again, I really enjoyed talking with Charles. It was great to get in depth on this topic and talk about it and understand it on a deeper level. I hope you enjoy this episode as well. All right, let's start it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. And today my guest is Charles Schauberger, and he is an OBGYN and a doctor in addiction medicine. And we're going to talk about a topic that I don't know is talked about a lot out there, or there might not be a lot of resources about it. We're going to talk about pregnancy and addiction. And Charles, I'm so thankful that you reached out to me and wanted to come on to the podcast because I think this is a topic that, uh, like I said earlier, just might not be out there and there might not be a lot of resources about it. Well, thank you, Dwayne. I uh, have enjoyed your podcast for probably the last year, year and a half. And you're correct. I have not seen or heard many podcasts in the addiction world that relate to the subject of pregnancy. 
and the patient with a substance use disorder. So I appreciated the opportunity to bring this discussion to uh, the public and help to um, answer questions perhaps and to give people a better frame of uh, reference when it comes to understanding how the two interact. Awesome. So first, I want to just know a little bit about your story and how you got into this field as an OBGYN and specifically working with people who are struggling with substance use disorder and how those kind of came together for you. Well, that's an interesting question, and I think my journey is relatively unique. First of all, so many people in my profession do have a personal history of addiction, but I have been blessed to have not had to take that course, and I have no personal addictions uh, other than uh, maybe that sugar addiction, which was mentioned a couple of weeks ago. Um, I yeah, need that's to a tough one for a lot of us. <laughs> but anyway, I have been an obstetrician, started in practice in 1982 and delivered probably over the course of my career about 5,000 babies. Wow. And uh, in 2008, I burned out and left clinical practice for two and a half years and became a hospital administrator, but uh, really missed patient contact. And so got back into it and dropped out as an uh, administrator and uh, have really enjoyed coming back to taking care of uh, patients again, mostly obstetrics, less gynecology. About that same time, a colleague in high-risk obstetrics went on sick leave, and so I took over his practice, and he was taking care of a, a handful, four or five uh, patients with addiction and when he came back, I asked him if I could continue to take care of them. And he said, certainly. And my practice grew from that point because everyone else who knew that I was going to take right. care of these people started referring their patients. The addictionologists that are in our area started referring patients to me. And so at its peak, I was probably taking care of about 25 or 30 women at any one time who were pregnant and had substance use disorder. One thing led to another. I got my X waiver to prescribe buprenorphine. And then I started to take care of these women after they had their babies for the six months or a year afterwards, and eventually dropped back to half-time in obstetrics and then part-time 0.2 FTEs in addiction and Last uh, January of 2020, I stopped doing obstetrics and just doing addiction. So I'm taking care of men for the first time in 40 years. They're really strange creatures, you know? <laughs> I, yeah, I think we are. <laughs> yes, we can be, definitely. So as you started, I'm curious about when you you took over this practice from your colleague and you started seeing these women who were struggling with substance use disorder and, and you're helping them through their pregnancy. It sounds like something there really called you to that. What did you see in them? What did you see in that moment that said, I really want to help these individuals? It's a good question, Dwayne. It's difficult for me to point to one factor. I, I think looking back at what my motivation was, was a recognition of a group of patients who were discriminated against, uh, 
that found it difficult to find services, that felt a great deal of the stigma associated with their drug use, and being pregnant made it even harder. So maybe I saw them as a, as a group of underserved people who needed me to really care about them. It was something that I needed probably in my heart and soul also. So I don't have otherwise a better answer, except it was just the right thing to do at the right time. It sounds like it was just that calling. You you kind of feel it, you know it, you know these people need help, and you want to help them, and you have the expertise to do it. Yes. Well, the expertise as far as addiction has been continually growing in me, and I feel that I'm making progress to understanding it better all the time. Well, I'm so glad you're helping these people. Let's jump in and talk a little bit about some of the unique things that you find in in this practice and with women and what maybe what some of the mistaken things or the mythology of pregnancy and substance use is and what we need to watch out for and what we need to look at and start to share your expertise. Well, first of all, the patients who have substance use disorder have every right to be pregnant and have children as much as anyone else. Some people look at it as being irresponsible, but I don't judge people on that point. Um, many patients will say that uh, uh, they uh, were shocked by being pregnant. They didn't think they could get pregnant, that they had maybe been sexually active for quite a long time period since their teens and had never gotten pregnant, and they thought that they were sterile, and then suddenly they show up pregnant. And about two-thirds of my patients that I have taken care of have already been in treatment and are on buprenorphine or methadone or on treatment for other substance use disorders uh, before they got pregnant. And some people think that it, that the medications have stabilized the opioid receptors such that their hormonal milieu is improved enough that a pregnancy might occur. I've not seen that specifically in the literature. I have seen that naltrexone has been shown to have a positive effect on fertility, but I think wow. it probably is true that with the other forms of MAT that it, it might stabilize the hormonal milieu to allow them to achieve a pregnancy. So actually, as they're on buprenorphine or, or naltroxone and, and, and working on their recovery, that it actually may increase fertility in them. Correct. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. So the average age for my patients who I've cared for is 27 years of age at the beginning of the pregnancy. And in the, uh, the regular non-substance using population, that age is 27 years of age. So it isn't that they're getting pregnant earlier or later. Their parity or their number of past pregnancies was slightly higher, but it's normal for them to be pregnant. It isn't something that should be considered uh, necessarily a bad thing. Now, in truth, I do suggest patients are, are better off if they are stable in their uh, treatment and recovery before achieving a pregnancy. But I never talk down to anyone who gets pregnant 
while they're still actively using. And in fact, we use it as an opportunity to help them to achieve recovery phase. So talking about that, like talking about being there with them and and not judging them, what is some of the stigma that they face when they go to get help with their pregnancy and they may be struggling with addiction, substance use disorder? How does that play out for them? Well, they're frightened of just about everything. There are multiple fears. First of all, they fear the stigma of being pregnant while they're actively using drugs. They are afraid of being judged, and they're afraid also that uh, they're going to have to stop using uh, buprenorphine or or medication-assisted treatment, and uh, that if they do stay on those medicines, if they go into labor, they won't be able to have anything for pain during labor, or if they had a C-section, that they wouldn't be able to have anything for the pain after surgery, which is incorrect but they have that kind of fear. There are a lot of women who fear that their babies are going to be taken away from them. There are some people who do not enter prenatal care until they're quite late in pregnancy or they show up in labor having received no prenatal care with the hope that uh, they will be able to sneak by. Nobody will check a urine drug screen and child protection services will be not aware of their presence uh, in the labor and delivery suite and they won't have their baby taken from them. So they they really almost avoid getting any kind of support because of all of these fears that come up or judgments. And, and I'm, I think there's probably a ton of judgment out there, even unconscious judgment of people who may not understand addiction or don't appreciate how, how addiction works in the brain. But I could see why they might not seek help or seek support or get that early prenatal care to make sure their their pregnancy is as safe as possible. Exactly. And of course, we see these images on television and on the internet of babies withdrawing from opioids, and they have the poor little legs shaking away like crazy, and and they fear they're going to do this to their child, so they want to quit using the buprenorphine or methadone and such. So there's those images are are very frightening. Nobody wants to do that to their children, right, but those right. images are so incorrect. I don't, I've never seen a baby with that severe of withdrawal symptoms if they have received care and are carefully monitored. Their babies will not suffer. So they can they can take care of themselves and also take care of their child if they get that professional support. Because you were saying a little bit earlier, the hormonal milieu, milieu, is that what I, did I say that correctly? The horm- that that's really important to manage if they're in that and, and without that professional guidance and they maybe come off that too fast or stop it, or that could actually maybe even be worse for the pregnancy. Well, uh, there have been theories that acute withdrawal from methadone or, excuse me, from uh, heroin or other opioids might be associated with greater risk of miscarriage or stillbirths, but for the most part, that's probably not the case. 
And the majority reason for having women use uh, MAT during pregnancy is to help to prevent relapse because relapses are dangerous for death. And so if we can stabilize the uh, and keep them on uh, buprenorphine or methadone, they have a much improved outcomes because certainly a dead mother leads to a dead baby. So we really want to uh, emphasize the importance of the use of those medications. Now, methadone doses may have to increase over the course of the pregnancy. Buprenorphine is much less likely to need to have significant dose changes over over pregnancy, but they're very safe medications not associated with birth defects. And the studies looking at neural development in the mother study is a large study that was done a few years ago. Even up to three years of age shows that these babies do very well. Wow. So there so with the with the right support and hope these babies can be grow up to be very very healthy and children and adults. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you know, of course there are different drugs and different effects for different drugs or certainly can be expected. Alcohol is particularly a a bad drug when we think of the effects of alcohol on developing fetuses and newborns. The fetal alcohol syndrome is a significant concern. And there are a lot of ongoing studies looking at the effects of methamphetamine and cannabis on developing babies, both in the womb and, and afterwards. Right. That's where where you really need an expert on board for care because it sounds like there's a lot of complexities to this, but with some care and support, both the mom and the baby can do well if, if they can get that support. But it sounds like that's the hard part, that they don't get the support. They very much need a broad range of services. The medical care is certainly one element, and there are people in just about every major city and a lot of smaller cities that do exactly the work that I do. There's a network of doctors who are obstetrical care providers who also are addiction providers, and uh, it is possible to find care providers in many cities who have that skill set. The bigger issues that I have problems with is the lack of community support for for Mm -hmm. women with substance use disorder in pregnancy. Um, Housing instability is huge. I have very few resources uh, for my pregnant patients who need safe places to live during pregnancy. And then after the baby is born, this is a, a very significant reason why some women do have their children placed in foster care is the lack of of housing. So we really need to have our community pay attention to this and help to provide the resources for housing. In our community, food insecurity is is not a huge issue. In some communities, it most certainly is. I'm not sure that all the food that people have access to is nutritional, but uh, at least it has the calories and the protein that most uh, need. 
mental health services can be a problem. Getting in to see a psychiatrist can be much more difficult than a lot of people would anticipate. But uh, managing their mental health takes uh, a huge amount of time and resources. To really uh, approach this from a holistic perspective, I know that part of your work is to advocate for that and advocate for this holistic treatment of women who are in this situation. Yes. Yeah. To my pregnant patients and my non-pregnant patients, my discussion as always is that the methadone or the buprenorphine that I prescribe for you isn't going to cure you of your your drug addiction. They're just it's just going to keep you alive while you make a better life for yourself that you will not want to ever leave. So that is the is the key I think is to work on getting a a decent job or and building relationships with people that are in recovery clearing up your legal issues, your criminal issues, so that uh, you can put that behind you. Uh, Those are the things that build recovery and are so important to people with substance use disorder, be be their pregnancy related or not pregnant. But uh, pregnancy is a transition point in many women's lives. And we follow our patients for years after they deliver. And we have seen that the effects of pregnancy can be a very positive influence. And so many of our patients uh, are in recovery and have stayed in recovery. And I think their commitment to their their child, to their children, has become a huge reason why they stay in recovery. One other thing that I, I want to also ask you about is I want to know how when when some of your patients come in to talk with you, what's their story of these women trying to get help and get really good support? And I want to hear about them and what their struggle is and and what that's like for them and what you see. Oh, there's such a range of of, uh, situations, uh, Dwayne. There are some women who find out they're pregnant very early in the pregnancy and because they're already in treatment, they may come into the clinic and announce within a matter of a few days after finding out that they're pregnant that that this is occurring. And we make it a point to uh, sit down and discuss with them the, the uh, options for treatment. And I have a, a brilliant uh, care coordinator that I work with, and she and I will sit down and talk to patients about addiction and pregnancy and discuss mental health and we'll review their their medication list as to what medications they're taking and get them on a good prenatal vitamin, some folic acid uh, to help reduce risk of uh, birth defects and uh, arrange for uh, early ultrasound to, so that we can successfully date the pregnancy. So that would be how we start out our pregnancy care is to spend quite a bit of time talking and answering questions and assessing their needs, not only medical needs, but their community needs and their, their resources they have available. 
there will certainly be plenty of need for discussions about their family, their uh, significant other, and how we can can assist them also. We have had multiple men who have have come in with pregnant women have gotten into treatment because their girlfriend or their wife needed to get into treatment and they knew that they needed it also. So we've been able to use that as an opportunity to help the entire family, not just the uh, patient. What we were kind of talking about earlier, that children can be that motivation, not that they should be that, but that they, they, they can help everybody get better. They can be the thing that says, you know, I really need to change my life because I have this child coming into it. Yeah, it's a, I've heard patients say, well, I, I'm not this uh, young woman without using drugs with my boyfriend. I'm going to become a mother. And I have to demonstrate to myself that it's time for me to grow up, so to speak, and to quit using drugs and to become the kind of person that I, I need to be for this new child. Yeah, and definitely a strong motivation to that. What about, I was thinking as you're talking too, there's this stigma about it so that when women go into their doctor, they may not say anything that they're struggling with a substance or, or something because they don't want the stigma so they don't get the, the right treatment. Well, there are a lot of people who uh, fly under the radar, so to speak, where they don't mention the fact that they have been using drugs or that they currently are using drugs, and they try to hide it as long as they can or entirely if they can or not even show up for prenatal care. So that's the other course that, uh, that uh, many people pursue. And it's our duty to try to identify these patients so that we can provide help to them. We did a prevalence study in our community. We had 200 consecutive obstetrical patients that we checked urine samples on to see what drugs were in our community, what our patients were using. And we de-identified the specimen. So there wasn't a question about getting a test on somebody who was right. unaware right. that they were being tested. And so we weren't able to identify the individuals as to what, what individual was doing, but uh, we didn't need to have uh, their consent this way. We found we had a 13% rate of drug use in our community. Now, half wow. of those were marijuana only, and the other half were dominated more by the opioids and then methamphetamine and benzodiazepines. And we only had one out of the 200 patients that had cocaine. Each community has their own profile of uh, drug use. And I'm in a, a small city of 50,000 with a surrounding area of 200,000. So we have some idea of what our community has for drugs in it and, and the approximate amount of drugs. So uh, this kind of prevalence study helps us to plan the kind of programming that we need to develop. And I recommend that almost every community do this kind of study. And it's, it's really fairly easy to do. Hospital foundations love to pay for this kind of study. It's, it's uh, easy science, and I recommend it to any doctors who are providing care in their community. 
Well, it really gives you an insight to the community and what to expect because a certain part of this population are going to be people who are going to be, you know, getting pregnant, women who are going to be getting pregnant. And you can plan for that and be able to provide care. There are certainly other ways to find out what drugs are in your community. Certainly talking to our emergency room doctors, talking to the public health authorities. Um, there's there's multiple ways to talk to your police officers and they can tell you what drugs are in the community. So we're going to repeat this study because we feel that there is a shifting occur over the past 10 years and we're seeing more methamphetamine in our community. Of course, the opioids, uh, we're not seeing much for heroin. We're seeing a lot of fentanyl. Oh, okay. So we we will probably, like I say, uh, probably repeat that study. Uh, we looked at the source of where our patients were coming from, and we had a lot of patients that were word of mouth. They were aware that we were available to take care of them because they're good friend had seen us and they knew that we could provide good care to them and would provide a safe place to receive care. We got referrals from the addiction doctors and addiction services. We got referrals from the county health people. We had several patients that have uh, entered our program through the county jails. And uh, we also had a few referrals from the uh, tribal health groups, as we do have a uh, Native American population within our community. So it's like these individuals are, they're really looking for that, what you said earlier, that safe space that they can go get the help they need without judgment, without stigma. And they really want that support. That's right. They certainly do. And uh, after we got our program up and running, we had our pediatricians that worked with us uh, said, hey, if you can do that in obstetrics, we can do that in pediatrics. So with additional social services assistance and an extra nurse or two, they developed a program to take care of the children of mothers with uh, substance use and have provided outstanding opportunities for care, again, in a non-judgmental platform. They have extremely high immunization rates, and uh, follow-up care is really excellent for these children. And that seems to be something that's absent in many communities, is that kind of organized approach where we had a seamless delivery from the obstetrical patient directly uh, for the pediatric care also. Wow. So really providing a a program that really wraps around people and supports them. And I think with addiction, when people are struggling with that, they really need that wraparound care that supports them through that process as they get recovery. And the beautiful thing about that is, is as they do that, like you said, they'll say, hey, help is over here. Go to that place. They're safe. They'll take care of you. They'll help you. They want to help. And it grows. When we have patients who see us for their pregnancy, we inquire about their dental health. And of course, many of them have problems with dental pain, which uh, leads to needing something for pain. And they end up in the emergency room seeking opioids and antibiotics. And so we negotiated with 
some of the dental care providers and community to move our patients to the top of the list to get in for seeing a dentist for regular care, teeth extractions or whatever needed to be done. So again, if, if you're passionate about providing holistic uh, care, it's important to take care of things such as dental care. We developed a relationship with the local community college to have these patients evaluated by one of their admission counselors as to their uh, educational and vocational status. Is there possible for us to help them get into complete their high school equivalency degrees while they're pregnant so that uh, they have a better chance of uh, jobs in the future? Or could we help them find jobs that would be appropriate and safe in pregnancy? So we call in favors and uh, get people to help us with the care of these patients, even when you wouldn't consider it to be the traditional care package that you might provide. You know, as you're as you're painting this picture of, of helping everybody, I'm just imagining the person who's in your care, they have all this support that then in and of itself, pulls down the stress, helps them focus on the pregnancy because they're being supported. And we all, everybody does better with support, right? So I just picture these these people being lifted up and helped through this process in a way that is person-centered, that is non-judgmental, that is caring. And it's really amazing what you're doing and specifically in this area. Well, you know, it's, it's part of the issue is that we're a small enough community that we know all the resources and we do have a tendency to uh, uh, pull together. I, I certainly recognize that if I were in a uh, a large city, the patient might be seen an right, right. in one clinic. They might see a addictionologist in another clinic. Their children might get care somewhere else. They they may not have the opportunity to put this all together, but I'm in integrated delivery system that's uh, not huge, uh, only 500 doctors. And we are all under one roof for the most part. And so communication is pretty easy and we can do some things that I think uh, other places can't. And so uh, even though like I, I talk about the resources that we were able to provide and the things we're able to do for these people, I can't expect everyone to be able to do that, every doctor to be able to do that. But what I would say is that it is possible that these kinds of care packages that we might put together could really be of great benefit to our patients. And, and I'm not thinking just pregnancy. I'm thinking our all patients, uh, all patients with substance use really do need to have help with getting jobs, help with finding housing. Uh, again, to build that life that is so good that drug use isn't even a consideration. Absolutely. Wow, Charles, thank you so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind. If you've listen to the podcast, which you have, you know, there's a question I love to ask at the end. If there is maybe a woman out there and they're in this situation, what would you want to say to them? What would you want them to know? I would want them to know that there are 
so many people who want to help them and they shouldn't consider themselves to be below standard as far as being able to receive treatment. They are important. And uh, if they can seek the help early in pregnancy, we have a better chance to helping them through some of the difficulties and make for a successful and safe pregnancy. Thank you so much. Uh, Where can people find you if they want to reach out to you, have questions to ask, want to follow up? How can they find you? Well, I don't have a website. I do have just an email, I suppose. So okay, I can put it in the show notes if you if you want to, or or we could find yeah, a way that, that they can reach out to you. Yeah, and if they reach out to you, uh, Dwayne, you can certainly forward anything, any questions to me directly. But uh, you can put my email address in your show notes, and if people want to reach me, I'm happy to try to respond in a timely fashion to help them out. You got it. As I mentioned, there is a network of care providers of, I know of at least several hundred doctors and midwives who take care of women and that have a, a similar passion to mine. It's called the Women's Action Group, and it's within the uh, American Society of Addiction Medicine. And there are providers throughout the country who are very passionate about taking care of these patients and we can always connect you with somebody from your region awesome okay we will also link that in the show notes as well so people can be able to find that on the addictedmind.com charles thank you so much for coming on sharing your wisdom sharing your passion i really appreciate it thank you very much Dwayne. it's been a pleasure I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the links will be in the show notes at theaddictedmind.com. And if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, you're getting a lot out of it, please write a review in iTunes. That really does help the podcast get found. And if you'd like to continue the conversation online, think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addictive Mind podcast, click join, and we'll see you there. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day, and I will talk to you on the next episode.